The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Professor Joel Kim. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Father, we come before you this morning as to drink from the fount of your word. We ask that you open our eyes, that as we read your word, you open it up wide so that we may understand the depths of your word. Open our ears, O Lord, that the voice that we hear will be yours and yours alone. And our hearts may be opened, O Lord, so that it may be softened and molded into the kind of men and women you desire us to be. We thank you and pray this in your son's name. Amen. Please be seated. Since many of you are heading into financially lucrative careers, this morning I wanted to speak to you about money uh, from the book of Proverbs, turning to chapter 30, verses 7 through 9. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So far the reading of his word. In the midst of the sayings of Agur is found this petition. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die, he says. As some scholars have rightly have pointed out, these petitions resemble those found in the Lord's Prayer and focus on two major themes in Proverbs, speech and money. There is no denying that the first petition is an important one when he says in verse 8, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Speaking takes up a lot of space in the book of Proverbs, partly because there is nothing like speaking, and perhaps not speaking, that displays wisdom and advertises folly. As important as this topic is for those of us who speak for a living, the focus of the prayer is on the second petition, found in the second half of verse 8, when he says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. It is this prayer that is stated both negatively and positively, and moreover, unlike the first petition, attached to this prayer are the reasons for the prayer in verse 9. To this matter, uh, latter petition we turn this morning, focusing on two ideas, sufficiency and satisfaction. The first is the idea of sufficiency. He says, give me neither poverty nor riches, Feed me with the food that is needful to me. Proverbs speaks often about wealth and poverty, often in realistic and balanced ways. It often depicts wealth as a blessing of God reserved for those who are wise, but recognizes that fools sometimes gain wealth. And in fact, he goes on to say that it's albeit for a short time, they might enjoy the riches of his blessings. It also states that foolish behaviors often lead to poverty, but also acknowledges that wisdom and wealth do not always go hand in hand, and often they're in opposition to one another. To sum up, perhaps oversimplistically, here Proverbs is basically saying wealth is good, but wisdom is better. 
How much better to get wisdom than gold, he says. To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. However, what interests us this morning in this present passage is that instead of the either or that characterized the passages on wealth, that is, either wealth or poverty, what we have here is a neither nor, neither wealth nor poverty. In other words, the prayer focuses not on abundance or want or lack. It focuses on sufficiency. The prayer asks for neither riches nor poverty, but what is needful to me. Not more, not less. What is needful to me may be different from one person to another based on his or her calling and circumstances. For example, whether one is single or married may affect how much we need. Perhaps some of us remember the narrative in Exodus where in 1618 when the Lord provided bread in the form of the dew on the ground and they were commanded to gather as much as they can eat. What was their response? They gathered some more some less, according to the needs of the family. Here, the wisdom is the ability to know what is sufficient for us, what we need and not what we want. Moreover, wisdom is the maturity to pray for sufficiency, being able to say simply, give us this day our daily bread, not more, not less. As 1 Timothy 6 8, Paul recounts his own dealings with money and in a surprising statement when he says, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. I'm sure many of us have read those words. I'm sure many of us have reflected upon those words. I'm not exactly sure how many of us actually mean those words when we say them. This is where the second half of the petition becomes important for us. For he says, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God, verse 9 says. What motivated Agur's prayer recorded for us in verse 8? Here, this is clearly a prayer of a sinner who understands himself and his capacity for sin. He states his motivation this way. When he has more than enough, he becomes self-satisfied. That's what he becomes. Rather than giving thanks to the one who gives all gifts and blessings, he rather denies God. Who is the Lord, he says, convinced that he has done it for himself. Oftentimes in ministry, when offering is discussed in Bible study or otherwise, and if you believe in tithing and the discussions of tithing takes place, almost always the question is raised by someone who raises his hand earnestly and asks, is it pre or post tax? But that precisely misses the point. Here, that betrays the person's thought, at least the thought process, that anything that we possess in some ways ultimately belongs to us and not to God. It's not giving a portion of ours to the Lord. It's giving back to the Lord what is rightfully his. Here, we come in abundance with self-satisfaction. When, when we have less, or when he has less than is needed, he drowns in self-remorse. Rather than greater dependence on God for his sustenance, he steals, no longer convinced that God can and will provide, and defames the name of God, blaming him for the circumstances. 
Perhaps it's worth noting for us that the first prayer, prayer that asks us not to lie, remove far from me falsehood and lying, is not so separate from the discussion of wealth and poverty after all. He asks for protection from lying either out of greed or out of need. But lest you think that somehow that this kind of sense of greed is only for those who are in need, let me point out that the explicit greed problem that we have is not about plenty or want, rich or poor, but a condition of the heart common in all of us, whether we have much or not. Greed hides itself from the victim, we are told. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, asks this question, why can't anyone in the grip of greed see it? In fact, of all the sins mentioned in scripture, this is the one that most people do not recognize in themselves. One of the reasons he gives has some plausible reasoning to it when he says, the counterfeit god of money uses powerful sociological and psychological dynamics. Everyone tends to live in a particular socioeconomic bracket. Once you're able to afford to live in a particular neighborhood, send your children to its schools, and participate in its social life, you will find yourself surrounded by quite a number of people who have more money than you. That's always true. You don't compare yourself to the rest of the world. You compare yourself to those in your bracket. The human heart always wants to justify itself, and this is one of the easiest ways. When we remember, I was traveling with Lloyd Kim, who's now the head of MTW, in Southeast Asia one time when he reminded me, in comparison to our brothers that we're meeting there, those of us who are Americans, we're Bill Gates to them in terms of the earning potential that we have and the money that we do actually possess. Here, this sense of greed and this desire is not simply about having and not having. What this prayer, especially the second half of prayer, highlights for us is an important perspective on money, that our relationship with money has a spiritual component. Both abundance and lack of money expose and excite sin in us, whether to congratulate self or to flagellate self, either way, it's ultimately about us. The issue of money provides a window into our heart condition. With abundance comes comfort and trust in wealth, placing security and satisfaction in something other than God. With needs and lack comes bitterness and longing, placing security and significance in something other than God. Ultimately, either way, we are dissatisfied with God. Here, with our longing comes dissatisfaction. In fact, uh, the Apostle Paul, Apostle Paul again in 1 Timothy 6, in the passage that follows the one that I quoted, goes on to say, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, he says. And part of the reason why he talks about this is that he's not only speaking to the rich among those who receive the letter, he has just referenced the false teachers in Ephesus, among whom he describes them as those who are seeking gain as a mean, uh, godliness as a means of gain, he said. Their actions of godliness is the means by which they gain gain wealth in particular. This is why he's able to say, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, 
into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. This is the direct connection made between money and our spiritual condition. This is the reason why Agur comes and his prayer is neither abundance nor want, but simply sufficiency in life. Now, as we talk about the connection between wealth and our spiritual condition, some of you might be saying, myself included at times, that we don't have that problem. We don't have that dissatisfaction regarding God's provisions for us. Perhaps this is where a diagnosis is necessary for us, and perhaps asking the question that Paul David Tripp, in his little article called Grumbling, a look at a little sin might be beneficial for us. He says, you know, we live with grumbling all the time. Isn't it amazing that we human beings can stand in front of a closet full of clothes and say we don't have a thing to wear? I've heard this before uh, from somebody in my family. Or, or stand in front of a refrigerator full of food and say there's nothing to eat. I've said this many times in my life in, in terms of looking at the fridge. We're angry at the food and go on diets because we're convinced that anything that ever tasted good is fattening. Isn't it remarkable that we have wonderful activity-filled lives full of meaning and purpose and we grumble that we're way too busy? Or that we can look at everything that exists and find some reason to complain? Grumbling may seem like a little thing, a little, uh, a, a, I'm sorry, a little thing, a little sin, but I would like to propose to you that grumbling is a pollutant in the waters of your heart. It will kill life he says. And I think he's right. And here, what we're reminded of is that what the Lord does is that he provides for our needs to our satisfaction. And his prayer is that we be satisfied in God and God alone. This is where Paul comes and reminds us that in verse 6 of chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, but godliness with contentment is great gain, he says. What is contentment? Perhaps this is oversimplistic, but if we can define it as an attitude of the heart formed by the Spirit that accepts and delights in God's wise and fatherly providence in every condition and circumstance of our lives. It's not about our concocted wants that are greater than what we need or less than what we need out of humility. Simply seeking from the Lord what we need insufficiency. Paul didn't ask, uh, uh, Paul's point simply is that as Ogur has done, that we approach God trusting in his care to ask for those things that are sufficient for us. And just as importantly, recognizing that these things reveal our hearts, that we be satisfied in him and him alone. It's actually believing the kind of promise given to us in Romans chapter 8 when he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He goes on to point out, if he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul did not ask the question to us, will God not graciously give us all things? Because my guess is you and I have a list of things that have yet to be answered, including a card in my garage, of my own choice and choosing from many, many years ago. 
Here, we could have said that there are many things that God has yet to provide, an equivocal answer at best. But notice what Paul does here. He first points out the costliness of our redemption. He who did not spare his own son. In saving us, God went to the limit. What more could he have given for us? We cannot know the pain felt by the Father and Jesus upon Calvary, yet we can say this. If the measure of love is what it gives, then there never was such love as God showed to us sinners at Calvary, and there never will be. The first point makes the question possible. Arguing from greater to the lesser, Paul says all things will be given. Having given his son, everything else that we might be complaining about pales in comparison in spite of our protests. Here, the Proverbs remind us that indeed, uh, as we come before God, God is adequate for us. He satisfies us, and he provides for our sufficiency. May the Lord bless you and I this morning and the days to come, that we may have the wisdom to seek sufficiency before the Lord. Give us this day our daily bread, and to trust fully that the Lord will satisfy, for he is an adequate God to us. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father, we confess to you that our circumstances dictate how we feel and think, perhaps even our prayers lifted up to you. We confess before you, O Lord, that oftentimes our prayers reflect the conditions of our heart, and generally, as we th think through them, they're primarily about us, focused on in on ourselves and our needs and our desires. Allow us and teach us by your spirit, O Lord, to see you and behold a faithful and trustworthy God who is always sufficient and satisfactory for us. Thank you for your promise to us, O Lord, that he who did not spare his own son will provide for all our needs. And we pray, O Lord, that our hearts may find contentment in you and give thanks and praise, praises to you for the kind of God that you are to us. We thank you for the reminders given to us in, in the book of Proverbs. Pray that by your spirit you grant to us overabundance of wisdom that only you can provide that we may live our lives daily for your glory and for your honor. For we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Copyright 2016, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.